Hey everyone, welcome back to Motherkind, the show that is going to help you navigate the massive challenges of motherhood and life with more acceptance, ease, joy and purpose. Thanks to each and every one of you that come back every week to listen, learn and feel inspired. And if you do love the podcast, can you do me a quick favor and hit subscribe? It really does help. This week's guest is the brilliant Dr. Pragya Agarwal. She's a behavioral scientist, an academic, a journalist, and an award-winning author who's written widely on racial inequality, parenting, and gender. I loved this chat. Pragya's story I found really inspiring, and I hope you will too. Here it is. This episode of the podcast is sponsored by Jamondo. I don't know about you, but between the girls' work and the domestic load, finding time to exercise is not easy. I also personally find gyms a bit intimidating and they don't work for everyone. So if gyms aren't your cup of tea, join the growing list of people cancelling their gym memberships in favour of working out at home with Jamondo. Jamondo is an online fitness and wellbeing platform with hundreds of 20 to 30 minute workouts and training programs ranging from HIIT and yoga to dance and meditation, plus over a thousand healthy recipes. So aside from the freedom and flexibility Jamondo offers, exercising at home is fun, it saves you money, it fits perfectly into your life and it helps you stick to your fitness goals. So start a 14 day free trial and save 50% on your annual membership by visiting jamondo.com. That's G-Y-M-O-N-D-O.com and entering the code MOTHERKIND. On to the episode. So Pragya, welcome to the podcast. This has been a little while coming. We had to rearrange, didn't we? So I'm so excited to finally get to connect and chat with you this morning. Thank you so much for having me on. Yes, it's been a while and I'm really looking forward to this conversation. So thank you. I wanted to start by asking you about something that I read in your brilliant book, Motherhood, with the M in brackets, which I just think is brilliant. (laughs) I'm sure you're very happy the day that you came up with that one. (laughs) You said motherhood has been my saving grace. And I wondered if that would be a really powerful place to start to weave into your journey and perspective on motherhood. What did you mean by that? I think I was reflecting on how often we think about motherhood as such a limiting thing. And yes, it is hard. It's extremely hard and we should talk openly about it. But just from my experience, I was very, very young when I had my first daughter. I wasn't expecting or anticipating. It wasn't planned at that stage. I think I had kind of lost my way along in that relationship, in that When you're young and you're thrown into this kind of new situation, new surroundings, you try and conform to what's expected of you. And so I was in India. I was very young. I was quite stridently feminist as I was growing up, but I was in love and I was in this joint family situation in India. And you just think, well, this is what is expected. This is what everybody does. So why is it so hard for me to conform to these expectations and norms? There must be something wrong with me. There must be something broken inside me. I'm making this situation difficult. And you 
don't have the perspective or the knowledge or the wisdom or the confidence even to say, actually, the problem isn't inside me, the problem is outside me. There wasn't that much awareness about coercion or toxic relationship. So I hadn't found my feet in that situation. And I think I'd lost my way along that. So when I became pregnant, it was something that kind of emboldened me in a way that I had this child that I was supposed to look after. It gave me a new sense of confidence. I could look ahead to the future with a different lens, perspective. And I think I'd stopped looking to the future. I had stopped thinking about the future. I had stopped imagining a positive future. I couldn't see my way out of the darkness. And suddenly I realized, even though the pregnancy was extremely hard, it gave me a lot of time to reflect because I was in bed for like four months. And that also showed how people were reacting to that situation. And we know about India that it's a very patriarchal society. The desire for a male child is very strong. And I was having a girl. And then I suddenly realized I don't want my child to grow up in this situation, in these circumstances. I want a very different life for them. And it kind of saved me from the darkness. I think it saved me from losing myself completely because I found the confidence to live not just for herself, but for me as well through that. Yeah. And I wonder what it was because we hear so frequently, I hear so frequently that story of people losing themselves in motherhood. What do you think it was that enabled that then to be a catalyst to change your life so beautifully and radically in the way that you did? What did you do differently, do you think, to so many other mothers who do get lost in that experience of motherhood and lose themselves completely to it? I don't think it happened overnight. The transformation couldn't have happened overnight. And it's only when I look back, I think, that it kind of was a radical kind of place or radical way to act. I also almost died in that process because after she was born, I had a severe hemorrhage. I lost five units of blood. I went into coma. I was given blood transfusion. I came back from dead almost. At that point, I thought I was losing everything that they'll have to grow up without a mother. And that was a very scary prospect because I suddenly realized I have to have this courage to live and to live a better life so that they have the courage to live a better life. It took a while. I tried to complete my education there. And then I got a scholarship to come here to do a master's. And and then it went on to a PhD. I got a British Council scholarship. And that was quite a radical thing for me to do, to think about continuing further and coming to a new country where I didn't know anybody. I've never stepped outside India and that too alone. We didn't have any family or friends. And I realized that was my way of actually saying, this is what I'm doing for her, but for myself as well, because I have to find myself before I can be a really good mother. It was extremely hard. It was extremely, extremely hard. I almost gave up lots of times. I had to leave her with my parents for a while in India. They brought her up while I was here on a scholarship. I was working lots of jobs to try and send money back, but also speaking to her every night. I was crying every night because I couldn't live without her. I was flying back and forth and that was expensive. So I had to save money. I wrote an essay recently about food and about how it was so difficult. I was often just eating plain pasta most nights. But I really wanted to do that. And in that process of separating myself from that situation, the toxic situation also gave me perspective because when you're immersed in a situation, often you don't see a way out and often you don't know what it is like. But when you 
move away from it, it gives you a new lens and a new perspective. So even though it was a really, really, really hard situation, it meant that I always had this thought, I'm creating this life for us. I'm creating this life. I have to do this for us. I have to do this for her because I need to give a better life to her. And I don't know any other way of doing that. And looking back on that time now, mm-hmm. you know, particularly maybe thinking about your relationship with her now and what you've achieved in your life, what were some of the big insights that you had during that really hard period that you've then taken forward into your life from that point? As I said, it was a difficult time. At times you doubt yourself. You think this is not the right thing to do. I am a bad mother. I think we always carry that guilt of being a bad mother all the time. So that guilt stayed with me. So even when she came here and joined me and I was a solo parent, I had sole custody of her, I think I tried to overcompensate for that time a lot. And I tried to Maybe in that overcompensating, again, I lost my way a little bit because I was trying so hard to prove that I was a good mother, not have the confidence that I was a good enough mother. I think maybe that time when we talk about it now, I don't regret it that much. I could have done a few things differently, but I don't regret it. And neither does she. I think she understands and really, really appreciates what has happened and how things have happened and the choices we make and the choices I've made. We were very close. We are still very close. Always the relationship is transforming and evolving. But I think through that process, I learned and through the years afterwards, I learned that there is no one way to be a good mother. There's no one way to be a bad mother or a good mother. And mothers are always judged. And we see so much in TV programs and books that we're reading. I watched Lost Daughter recently, and I could really relate to that because the desire to be yourself and do something, but then also feeling slightly sometimes trapped by motherhood, but also knowing that if you stepped away from it, you would be judged, but also you would judge yourself and carry that guilt all the time. And I could relate so much so much to that character as an academic and the way that she was struggling with it and the way that she felt guilty about the time when she stepped away. And we know that mothers are judged more than fathers who step away from their children. Maybe I know she was looked after my child. I know my parents were giving her the best life. I know that was the best choice for us at that moment. But I think it has made us her realize, and I think it made her realize the sacrifices sometimes we have to make to make the right choices, but also that how important it is to be independent, how important it is to have courage to follow our path, our vision. I hope they have the same courage to do that. And I know they have. That's what I was thinking when I read the book. I was really reflecting on the courage that it must have taken to come to a new country, to leave your daughter behind, having had that huge birth trauma. Have you always had that level of belief? There must have been a part of you that believed that you were worthy of coming here to do their PhD, that you could do it. Or did you have to really work on that muscle? What was that internal landscape like? I do think I had a certain amount of belief. And I think I am grateful to my mother, maybe my parents, who gave us this courage as I was growing up. She was always gave us this kind of belief that we need to find our own path and we need to be independent and financially independent, at least. For her, that was a limited landscape still. We still had to conform to being a good wife and good mother, and there was a way to be. But I think I always had this kind of, you might call stubbornness or belligerence or something. I think those kind of words about the fact that if I decide on something, 
I follow it through. And if I know that this is what I want to do, and maybe I realize now, maybe it is partly to do with being ADHD, that kind of hyper-focus that comes sometimes in phases where you're so ultra-focused on something. But as I said, I had lost part of that. I had lost part of myself in those intervening years when I was married and I was a young, I was becoming a very young mother. I was so young, I kind of didn't know how to be myself in this situation where I was expected to be somebody else. And that huge conflict was very traumatic, actually more traumatic than the whole birth trauma at times. And I think when I stepped away, I suddenly realized oh, this is who I am. I have space to breathe. I have time to breathe. I can be brave if I really want to be. Because ultimately, I wasn't just being brave for myself. And that's why I say motherhood was a straight saving grace. That is, we were in this together. I was being brave for my child as well. I was being brave mainly for her, that this is what I want for our life together. Is that what you meant when you said mothering would be my biggest gesture of defiance? Yes, I think so. I think sometimes, as again, we see mothering as something that can hold us back and that we have to be a certain way, we have to do certain things. But I wanted to mother in a model that was different. Mothering meant to me not just giving birth and conforming to these expectations or to these norms, but actually creating a vision of life for my child that was defiant, that was rebellious, that seemed rebellious to others, but maybe it wasn't rebellious. And I wanted my child to grow up to be defiant and rebellious in the same way. I'm smiling because I really connect with that idea. And I think it's the same experience for me, actually, you know, becoming a mother enabled me to walk away from a 12 year career that wasn't serving me because I wanted my girls to see someone who was doing something of purpose in the world. They loved. I think it's such an under talked about, but really empowering, positive force that motherhood can be and is. Yes, absolutely. You suddenly see world differently and more clearly at times. I think you can see the world more clearly because we talk about raising kids, our children in an empowered way. We talk about them owning this world. We talk about them being their true selves. But first, we have to walk that walk. We have to show them what that looks like. We have to show them this is what looks like to find purpose, to do something more meaningful, to create change. This is what it looks like to break the boundaries that you are constrained within. And unless we do that, unless we walk the walk, I think that's the best modeling we can do. That's being a role model rather than telling them this is what, or even reading a lot of books or showing them examples of others. The best example is within. And I say that now, maybe perhaps from a privileged position, some people might not have that opportunity or the privilege to do that, to step away from a career or to step away from certain things that they find toxic and abusive or harmful to them and their children. But I think we can find courage. And we see so many examples of mothers who take that courageous and brave path once they become mothers because they find that belief that we have to do this for our children as much for ourselves. And you talked about change. What are some of the big changes that you would love to see? You talk about loads of them in the book, but what are some of the really big societal structural, and you talked about boxes there. What are some of the big changes that you would love to see in the motherhood and mothering landscape? 
this so much as you say, I think we need to start by saying that mothering is very different from motherhood, that the notion of motherhood is so intrinsically linked with this kind of feminine stereotype of nurturing that every woman wants to become a mother, no matter what, that every woman is a good mother in a certain way, that good mother is defined by certain things. If you don't do these things, then you're a bad mother. And I know social media creates that kind of pressure sometimes, that images we see in books and film and media creates those kind of pressures, that we think this is what we need to do to be a good mother or that we have to become a mother. And I think, first of all, we need to break out of this kind of stereotypes and tropes that every woman or girl is assigned as soon as they're born to be allowed to make those choices freely about whether you want to become a mother or not, how to mother, how to parent is a choice that you should be allowed to make. And that comes from self-belief, but we don't talk enough about that as well. And I talk in the book about how biology is taught in textbooks as well and the way that we tell girls or women that marriage or children is your ultimate destiny, the way that we talk about reproduction in textbooks, that the egg is waiting passively in it and then the sperm comes in in a very active way. And that's not how it works in a biological process. But we assign these kind of passive and active stereotypes to women and men. I think women's bodies... They should be allowed to choose for themselves what they want for their bodies. We enforce a lot of stereotypes and kind of shame around women's bodies as well. And I think that is something we need to allow girls and women to think that we shouldn't be ashamed of our processes, physical, biological processes that our women, that our bodies are undergoing. I think also we need to talk about it in a more intersectional perspective. A lot of these discussions happen around white middle class discourse is centered on that. And we need to think more about black and brown bodies. We need to think about how the reproductive choices that are on offer to women and young women and even older women are limited by the sociocultural or economic context or their race or ethnicity or class, all those kind of things. Where you live is determined by that. So I think we need to have a more expansive, broader conversation around that. But ultimately, it is about choice. Ultimately, it is about what choices we make are so limited by the societal expectations and our pressure to conform to these expectations. And I always think that society expects so much from women to become mothers, and there's so much panic around at the moment about women are not giving birth or the birth rate is falling. And the ONS data came out recently that the birth rate is falling Society doesn't do much in return. Women do so much unpaid labor around motherhood. We don't get compensated for that. It's just invisible unpaid labor. We don't have free childcare. We don't have support for that. And so this penalty exists for women who become mothers or choose to become mothers. And so that means that they are pushed out of careers and they don't advance as much in their careers. So this kind of frustration builds up sometimes. So this becomes a binary choice that you choose either your career or your children or your family. And it shouldn't be like that. There should be more societal support structures around women who choose to become mothers about what they need, what really they need to become a good mother, but also be fulfilled in their career or they choose to have a career. So I think all those kind of things, we need to ask, what does society do in return for mothers? And if you were in charge of policy... What would the first policy be that you put into place that you think would make the biggest difference on some of those things that you just mentioned? I mean, there's so much, but equal paternity leave would be a really good step because we don't have 
uh, paternal leave equivalent to maternal leave. And it's still very short often in a lot of companies and organizations, one week maybe or two weeks, which means there's a pressure for the father to go back if it's a heterosexual relationship to go back to work immediately. That means that choice is already made about who's going to stay at home and look after the children and who's not. And so this choice is not something a family makes on their own, and which means a man's career is always given priority than a woman's career. It also gives the message that it's the woman's role to look after the children and the home. And it's their domestic domain is women's domain and men should go out and work and bring back money. And so those kind of stereotypes and force. So I think if we do that equal leave, then families or couples or people in relationship have an opportunity to make these choices themselves about who goes back to work, how do they balance this, how do they juggle this. Also, there has to be better childcare. There has to be better state-funded childcare for people. I was looking at some data and the amount of money that we paid here for our twins for nursery, just so that I could work some of the time, they only went three days a week was almost, I don't know, 10 times more than what people equivalent would pay in Berlin. That is crippling. That's a crippling cost. Again, it comes back that women will have to stay at home and look after the children because they don't have the choice or the option. So I think those two things would have to be really the priority. I totally agree with you. The cost of childcare is just, there's so many mothers working for free or at a loss just to stay in touch with their career and their profession and their skills so they don't lose those because we know as well the economic impact of a big gap out of the workforce as well. It's it's absolutely crippling. And you mentioned that you did three days because you've got five-year-old twins. What, what was your setup like with your partner? How did you try to bring some of your beliefs around equality and empowerment into your home when you had the twins? So we try to model equality, gender equality in the way that we distribute or divide household work. So I don't want my children to grow up and saying this is women's work, that doing the dishes or doing the laundry. So their father probably does more of that. I'm, we just play to our strengths. So he's better at it and he's more coordinated and tidier and neater and all those kind of things. So we try to do that. In that setup, when they were young, I was working freelance. I decided to go freelance because... I felt the pressure. They were born premature. They have a lot of health issues or problems in the first year. They were, we were in and out of hospitals. They didn't sleep for up to 12 hours sometimes. So it was just exhausting. I was freelance, so which meant that I had more flexibility about, around my schedule, but I still needed some time to work, you know, to have that headspace. My husband is an academic, which also gave him some flexibility to work from home. So three days they were in nursery. One day he would look after them. And one day I looked after them. So the other two days we divided between us at home. I love that you talk about modeling the domestic duties. I really try and do that as well, because that wasn't my experience growing up. I grew up where I never saw my dad, you know, he was just out working. I never saw him do anything at home. And I'm really grateful to my husband's parents because they were quite role reverse. So they were quite progressive in that way. So yeah, my husband does an awful lot around the home. And the other day we asked my two-year-old what she thought daddy's job was. And she said, wiping the sides. (laughs) (laughs) I love that. She's obviously seen him. His job is to tidy up after dinner. So she obviously really sees him like wiping the sides a lot. 
I wanted to ask you about the language because you talk so brilliantly in this book and I had loads of aha moments and insights when you talk about the power of language, about us talking about geriatric pregnancies and the World Health Organization classing fertility as a disease. It's just insane. Can you talk to that? Why is the language that we use around motherhood and mothering so important? And what can we do, you know, as the mothers listening to this who are progressive, who are empowered, who do want to change the landscape? What are some of the things that we should be cutting out of our vocabularies? I think words and language are really important. Of course, we learn this language as we are growing up as well. So sometimes we internalize these words and we don't think about the meaning or the impact these words can have. And I was just shocked while going through fertility treatment about things like just casually said about inhospitable uterus or, as you said, geriatric mothers is something which is shocking because over 35 is not geriatric. I was just so surprised. It's like, okay, that's just the downhill from here then, is it? But I think words and language are really important because they create bias. They can be biased in themselves, but they can reinforce some of these biases and stereotypes as well. So I think as we grow up, we listen to, we absorb these messages from our parents, from the families we've grown up in, around us, what people are saying. And we learn that and we don't question or challenge them because we think this is it. This is what is expected and accepted. So how do we question or challenge these things? So I think as parents, I always think that we have to first unlearn some of these biases that we have learned ourselves, because unless we challenge these things and unless we question our own internalized stereotypes or biases or implicit biases that we carry, we cannot make sure that we are not passing it on to our children because our children are like sponges, even as parents or educators or carers, any child we come in contact with, children learn these biases from the things that they see around them or hear around them. So unless we question our own biases and we make efforts to unlearn our own biases, we cannot make sure that we are not passing this on to our children, even we want them to be empowered and unbiased. So sometimes I find myself saying things like recently I said to my child, I was giving an example of somebody that they'll go and ask their mommy and papa because that's generally, I'm just giving an example. And she turned around and said, but you know that they might not have a mummy and papa. They might have two mummies. They might have two papas or they might have somebody else take care of them. And at that moment, I was so proud because obviously it's the lesson I'm trying to give to them that families come in all different shapes and sizes. And she had absorbed that. But I had fallen back into that while I was saying that to her and she questioned and challenged it, which was really great. So I think words have huge power and we sometimes dismiss the power that words and language have. I think the more we challenge our own words and language that we use around our children, the more we can make sure that we're not passing these biases on to them and these stereotypes around masculine, feminine or gender stereotypes or racial stereotypes, all those kind of things. Like you say, often it's so implicit and unconscious and it's so important, I think, to continually be thinking about the words that we use. You know, words, they're like spells, aren't they? And they paint pictures. And like you say, our children are like sponges. You said there that one of the important lessons that you want to teach is that families come in all shapes and sizes. What are the other, you know, if I asked you to think about the sort of three big lessons that you really want your children to see being modeled by you or being imparted by you, what would those be? I think one of the really important things for me is for my children to acknowledge and understand their privileges, that we all have privileges. So even as mixed heritage children, they have brown heritage, they look very different to a lot of the children in the year. 
And so they might face some prejudices or biases or discrimination based on their gender or their ethnicity in life. But I still think that even with that, we still have privileges. And that's why we need to think about intersectionality, that my education, our class, or whatever we do, it gives us some kind of leverage and opportunities in life that others might not have. Even though I make them aware of racism and sexism and misogyny and all those kind of things and how to stand up to that, I also want them to understand that they have certain opportunities that others might not. And can they help others? How can they use their privileges as opportunities rather than feel guilty about them? How do we be a good ally? How do we support others who might not have these things? So I think that is a huge, important, always an important thing for me. When my eldest was growing up, I took them to a homeless shelter as soon as they were of a certain age. And we cooked Christmas dinner for them. And from the age of 13 or 14, they helped out serving Christmas dinner to the homeless people on Christmas Day and Boxing Day. And I think that gave them an insight on how certain people live and what we can do through our lives. So that is an important lesson for me to, I hope that my children will absorb. Another thing is obviously about how do we stand up to any kind of discrimination and prejudice? And maybe I didn't do that at times in my life. And how do we have the vocabulary to stand up to that? How do we have the belief in ourselves to stand up to these things? Because when we face that, our first reaction can be, oh, I'm being oversensitive, oh, I'm overreacting. Maybe it's not what I'm imagining. And we begin to doubt ourselves. But if we have to give their children the right vocabulary or the right words to say, please do not talk to me like that. I do not like like this, or this is not nice. Even at, at such a young age, I'm trying to make them understand that other people's actions are not a reflection on you, first of all. So it's their fault or their problem that they're doing this. It's not your fault or problem so that we don't internalize that. But secondly, we can counter that with words and language in the first instance. I think that is a really, really important thing for me. My twins are all, one of them is constantly still already asking questions about do all people in the world get married? Do, are they all married? Or do they all have children? Does everybody have children? Do I have to have children? And I think, again, the notion of choice is really an important thing for me to transmit to them, especially as girls, that they have the choice to make this decision, that they should have all the information. And then it's their body, it's their choice. And she's already, sometimes it comes back to bite me because she always like, it's my body, my choice. I don't have to do that. What do you ask me to do? And I'm saying, come on, just wear a jacket. It's cold outside. <laughs> so I think that is a really important message. I'm laughing because I have exactly the same. I've taught both from when both my girls were born and they often especially the six-year-old not really the two-year-old but the six-year-old you know I'll say you need to put some cream on for your eczema and she'll go but my skin's not itchy today I know my body you always tell me I know my body better than anyone so I have to go with that right because I can't teach body autonomy and then say but you know so I'll say okay if it doesn't feel itchy you feel it does it feel dry do you think you need the cream but it definitely is taking my influence over her body you know like wanting to do her okay I don't really have much there now because I've really taught her. I've really taught her that she's in charge of that. And that is really powerful, isn't it? To see them be like this at such a young age. I was also really touched when you were saying about teaching boundaries really young. Because what I hear a lot in the playground and, you know, the kind of school gates is 
you know, oh, he didn't mean it. I'm sure he didn't mean to say that to you. And I teach the opposite, actually. I say, you can say, just as you modeled, don't speak to me like that, or I don't like it when you say that, or I don't want that. But I think there's such a societal pressure to be keeping the peace. And I think we often model that inadvertently to our children. So I teach Jesse exactly the same in the playground to speak up. And I never say, I'm sure that person didn't mean it because they said it. So it's really interesting. It's quite different, isn't it? It's definitely not the norm that. No. And I think, again, we have to understand that impact, words have impact. It's not the intent of always that counts. It's the impact. We cannot imagine the intent a person had or not. But if that's having an impact on you, you should be able to challenge that and say, yeah, set boundaries, as you say. Absolutely. That is so important. Another thing is, I think those expectations are sometimes laid more on girls or women, for instance, to be passive, not to reply or to be strong, opinionated. Another expectation I find is to smile and yeah, to keep peace, but to smile quite a lot as well and say that. And we recently went to a dentist and he kept saying, she's not smiling. She's not smiling. Why are you so miserable? And I'm like, she's just got a face. She's just thinking. She doesn't need to smile all the time. And in the swimming pool, a boy said to my girl, you swam really well. And she just looked and walked away. And I said, perhaps that was a nice thing to say. Did you want to say thank you? She said, I didn't ask him to say that. So I didn't know whether I, I didn't want to say thank you because I didn't ask him to compliment me. And I think it's given me a new perspective on certain things because I look at those things from her perspective and the way that she's so forthright and straightforward about these things that I didn't expect this. So I shouldn't be expected to reply in a certain way as well, which was interesting. What are you still working on from an internal perspective? We've talked about empowerment and language and boundaries and self belief confidence. What is it within yourself that you're still striving to model in a more embodied way? I think the notion of my own body, I think how it, whether it fits the norms or not. I think from a young age, these kind of things about whether you're dark or fair skinned, whether you're tall enough or not, whether you're slender enough or not. And those kind of hangups, I think we internalize quite a lot about whether I've gained weight, I've put on weight and I do I like myself when I look in the mirror or not. And I think that is something I've always struggled with. I don't like photographs of me. Over the pandemic lockdown, I put on weight due to hormonal reasons, due to not doing enough exercise or other chronic illnesses. And then when I see like videos of me or photographs, I find myself cringing a little bit and feeling ashamed of my body. And then I'm thinking I shouldn't but I'm trying to model that in a way that I don't talk about my body in that way in front of my children or to monitor what they eat or what I eat in front of them or to think about whether I need to lose weight. Yes, I need to be fitter and stronger so I could exercise. I can eat healthier. So I'm talking about healthiness and fitness and strength more in front of them and trying to learn those kind of beliefs and attitudes that I had over a long period of time, rather than thinking about I need to lose weight because I want to look a certain way. And that is something that I've been working on quite a lot. You're not alone. I actually think it's a huge epidemic, really, that there's not many women that I speak to who have that reverence or full acceptance of their bodies. I was reading a study the other day and the percentages were astronomically high of women who said that they felt shame or they wanted to change their body in some way. I think it's a pretty universal experience. 
which is just fascinating to unpick for the next generation, as you said. I always ask the same question at the end of every interview, which is if you could give just one gift to all the mothers in the world, what would that one gift be and why? Wow, that's a big question. Oh gosh, a gift of space and time to create space and time for yourself and not to feel guilt about it if you require space and time. Maybe that's a second gift, but it's related to the first one. To not feel guilt, I think being released of all the motherhood guilt, I think would be a great gift. It would be incredibly powerful, wouldn't it? Thank you so much. It's been an absolute joy and you've made me think about so many things and I've loved getting to know you and your story. So thank you. Thank you so much for having me, Zoe. It's been fantastic speaking and also hearing about you and how you're modeling all these things in your own family and household is great. Thank you. So that was the episode. I hope that you really enjoyed it. As ever, if you did, please consider sharing it with your friends and leaving me a review on iTunes. It really does make a difference to the number of mums that we can reach with the brilliant wisdom of the guests I have on. Hi, I'm Lauren. And I'm Nicole. And if you enjoy this show, you will love our podcast, Self Care Club. Every week, we trial a different form of self care and report back on the results. We've tried everything from cuddle therapy, setting boundaries, laughter yoga, and many more. Two friends who rarely agree on anything, testing out the world of self care so you don't have to. We've even written a book dedicated to self care practices that cost you nothing. You can listen to Self Care Club wherever you get your podcasts. Or to purchase our book, search Have You Tried This on Amazon.